Hey everyone, welcome to the What Is Money show. I am sitting down today for a unique style of show with Linda and Josh Hill, uh, mother and son duo. And the backstory here is that Josh DM'd me and recommended actually that we did kind of a beginner's question intro to Bitcoin. And so his thought in general was that if we could answer questions in a way that his mom found digestible, that he thought that would be very valuable for a wide ranging, um, let's say baby boomer uh, demographic. And so I thought that was a good idea and we exchanged the messages and here we are today. So uh, Josh is just in standby mode for now. He might tune in later. Linda, welcome to the show. Thank you. So I really appreciate you doing this. And I think we should just jump in. I think you've got some questions for me. We're going to work our way through that structure. And then if other questions come up, we'll go that direction as well. I'm going to do my best to keep it simple, straightforward, and slow. So if I at any point deviate from those aims, please let me know. Okay. So my first question is, what is crypto? Great question. Uh, a lot of people are asking themselves this question these days. And I think the first thing to know is that Bitcoin is the original crypto asset. It was the first of its kind. There had never been anything like it before Bitcoin. Um, what has happened since Bitcoin emerged because Bitcoin is just open source software. So this is like internet, like uh, you're familiar with like HTTP on the internet. Like I said, the beginning of every website, HTTP is a hyperlink transfer protocol. So it's just a set of open source software, open source meaning specifically that everyone can see the source code. There's nothing hidden about it. It's just, an, it's a protocol with all the language uh, visible. It's tra fully transparent, let's say. And protocol meaning it's like a standard of communication. So think of it like, um, you know, we have protocols when we drive around on the freeway or the roads, right? Like in the US, we all drive on the right-hand side of the road. That's a protocol. You know, we stop on red, that's a protocol. We go on green, it's a protocol. So it's these common standards of action that allow us to flow together harmoniously. And you, you could just imagine if we didn't have any of those things, we'd just be what, driving all over each other and, you know. So um, one answer here is that you could consider Bitcoin as like the original money over internet protocol. Uh, have you ever heard of voice over internet protocol? These are like phones that use the internet instead of telephone lines. Well, yes, but I'm just not that familiar with that, but yes. Yeah, it was in the the acronym, you know, voice over internet protocol, VoIP. It was kind of popular, I guess, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, but essentially meant that. It was like you were using a digital-based protocol versus a landline protocol. So anyways, Bitcoin's kind of like that. This is, again, an, an analogy I'm grasping for. It's like the money over internet protocol. 
everyone can see the code, right? Everyone can see all of Bitcoin. You can download the entire code base to your computer, run a full node, which means you're basically verifying everything in the software. Again, there's nothing hidden, right? That's the key point. 100% transparent. And I'm getting to the answer of what is crypto here. Crypto is essentially other individuals or businesses copying that code, right? Copying Bitcoin's code and then modifying it and then using it to either try to compete with Bitcoin. So they're either trying to compete with the money over internet protocol or they're trying to use it for some other market niche. You know, there's, there's a lot of theoretical use cases for quote unquote blockchain technology or distributed consensus technology, which Bitcoin represents. But in my view, the only proven use case is Bitcoin itself. So today we have this huge universe of crypto, which is again, Bitcoin is like the originator. And there's, there's an, there are a number of complex reasons around why it is fundamentally different from everything else in my view, which we'll probably get into later. But we'll just set that aside for now and say there's a bright line between Bitcoin and everything else that is crypto. All of this crypto world has essentially done a copy paste of Bitcoin's code, modified it, and then launched their own token or coin or crypto asset. And so, the analogy I like to use here, again, circling back to the protocol analogy is Bitcoin is more like the internet itself. You know, again, we don't commonly know this, but we're familiar with HTTP. You may have heard of something like TCP IP. These are all open source internet protocols. And the stack of these protocols together is what's called the internet protocol suite. That is the internet. It's just a stack of open source protocols. And so we can all do things permissionlessly, right? You can go and launch a website without anybody's permission. You can, you know, um, write code without anyone's permission. You can distribute it without anyone's permission. So there's these open standards for communication that uh, the internet gives us. And that's why it's so powerful, so transformational. People can communicate widely, very cheaply without permission. So I view Bitcoin as essentially an extension of that. It's just the internet protocol suite. But instead of being an open source protocol for moving information as the internet is, Bitcoin is an open source protocol for moving economic value. And there's, there's a set of complex reasons around that, like how, how does it hold value and whatnot, which we can get into later. But to focus on crypto for now, the entire other universe of quote unquote crypto assets, people call them alternative crypto assets, altcoins, uh, people in Bitcoin call them shit coins, <coughs> excuse me. So they go by all these different names or in my view, essentially venture capital. So they're companies, right? These are groups of people that have gone and done a copy and paste of Bitcoin code and are now trying to commercialize it in some way. They're trying to sell a coin or, you know, create a business or create an online business or, or be money, which again, it's venture capital, but typically venture capital has, it's subjected to what's called due diligence, which is where people are actually analyzing 
the viability of the project and very few projects get funded. But with alternative crypto assets, since there's no, you and I can go launch LendaCoin in 15 minutes on Ethereum. And then so long as we can convince enough people to buy LendaCoin, then we've launched a business essentially. So the space is rife with scams, as you might imagine, because the low bar of entry, anyone can launch a coin and you can sell it. You can just spin up any narrative you want to get people to buy the coin. So it's very scammy. That's why Bitcoiners are very resistant to that space and resistant to alternative coins. And I'm, I don't want to say with any conclusive final verdict that nothing will ever come of it at all, but nothing has really come of it yet. Nothing of value has succeeded other than Bitcoin. So you've got Bitcoin is like the internet of money. Altcoins are like, um, they're liquid venture capital, basically. You have this little token that represents an interest in a business, but also <laughs> you're not protected by the law, really. If someone sells you a coin and then they, you know, you buy it at a dollar and they dump it down to a penny, you just lo lost your money. You don't have any recourse against that company because this, uh, these equity or, or capital transactions you're doing with alternative coins, they're not even in the purview of the law, really which is interesting because it lives all on the internet. So it'd be really hard if you bought one of these coins and got scammed, it'd be really hard to go and sue this company because it's just people on the internet. You, you, know, you can't even find out who they are. Um, the money itself doesn't even live in a bank. You know, the money is essentially online. So you can't reverse transactions. You can't, you can't get any recourse to the legal infrastructure should you get scammed. So I hope that helped answer the question a little bit. There's a lot there. Um, did any questions come up for you? <clears throat> well, my question, I guess, because I was raised where we had the money backed, you know, by a, a metal, silver, gold, whatever. Um, who, where did it come from to start with? Who invented it? I mean, you know, because computers, when I grew up, they were in a big room. Mm -hmm. yep. <laughs> it wasn't until I was in college that we started getting, you know, and then later in life, you can have a laptop. Uh, yep. Those weren't around. So that is the concept that's hard for my mind to wrap around is how is this safe and where did it come from? I mean, who thought this up? And I've, I've heard there's only so much of it that there mm -hmm. can't be any more made. Right. Um, so like I said, how did all of that come about? Because, you know, we have the banks that the, the Federal Reserve monitors and that. Who, who monitors this? Great question. So <laughs> we'll start with the inventor. The inventor is a pseudonymous software engineer named Satoshi Nakamoto. Nobody really knows who he, she, or they are. Uh, we're going to go with he because he identifies as a he, and in some of his writings, <laughs> he says he's a guy. So he, Satoshi, released the Bitcoin white paper, which is a technical document, nine page, I think it's a nine page technical document describing how it works. He released this into a cryptographer chat room. And 
um, I guess other the other important point here is that Bitcoin's not the first attempt at private digital money. There had been over two decades of attempts, people trying to figure this out, different projects like eGold and Hashcash and others. And this particular chat room that he released Bitcoin into was full of those uh, those types of entrepreneurs. A lot of them called called themselves cypherpunks. So they were trying to develop a money that was independent of state control. So a money that resisted monopolization by the government, basically. That was their aim, but no one could figure it out. No one, there'd been various attempts. Some had been marginally successful, but the real issue was always that they were centralized ultimately, so they could be shut down. Um, so that, I'll answer that for who invented it. Satoshi Nakamoto, and then basically nobody knows who he is. But the code he released in the white paper, again, nothing is hidden, right? It's just 100% transparent code. So there's nothing when people are saying, like, how can we trust Satoshi that wrote the code? It's like, you don't need to trust Satoshi. You can go and analyze the code down to the last letter and verify it is what it says it is. And again, this is the power of open source technology. It's like it's incorruptible in a way because nothing is hidden. So that's a really key point um, with open source. So to pivot to the question, what backs it? What backs Bitcoin as money? As you said, dollars used to be backed by gold, right? Right. <laughs> Every currency in the world historically, like as a paper currency, was initially redeemable for some form of monetary metal. That's what that was its whole point, actually. It was a the paper banknote was a receipt or a claim token or a call option for money. It was not money itself. It was the paper note right. was a claim on money. Money was the metal, right? Gold or silver, typically. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes, okay, why gold and silver? Why did gold become money? And this is like, this is why I think a lot of people struggle with Bitcoin because you can't even, to ask the question, what is Bitcoin? It almost doesn't, you can't answer it until you understand why gold became money. And this is why I have a whole show built around this topic, right? It's like, you need to go into the depths of history before you could ever understand this new technology. You need to understand, and again, with gold in particular, the oldest tool, basically, we've been using it for 5,000 years as money. We've been using it for so long, I joke that we even forgot why it's valuable. We all know gold is valuable. You know, we have all these um, mm -hmm. phrases built into our language, like, oh, he's worth his weight in gold, or, you know, this is the gold standard of shovels, or, you know, we say all these things about gold, like it's, it's the premier asset we it's like embedded in us but cognitively we don't know why so we know gold's valuable but if you say why is gold valuable people don't really know so well it gets it gets harder so okay this opens up a bit of a rabbit hole but i'll try to keep it simple um human beings choose every tool based on how well it does the job, right? I mean, um, 
this is pretty straightforward. Like you want to dig a hole, you know, you want to shovel, right? You know, the, the width of the shovel and there's all, they're slightly different. Uh, one probably has a little lip on the back of the shovel that helps you put your foot on it and dig it in, makes it easier to dig. The link, the stick has a certain length and there's different shovels for digging different types of holes. If you need to dig a really big hole, maybe you need um, like a backhoe or something like something mechanized. So the key point here is that we, we actually, it's not even about the thing itself. It's ultimately about what services does that thing render to me? And so right. anywhere I'm, I'm getting too <laughs> deep or philosophical here, feel free to pause me. But this is a key point that I think will come back later. Then it's not like, it's not so much about the physical thing. It's about what I want that thing. What, what do I want it to do for me? So what's another example? The Sony Discman, right? Do you remember the portable CD player people yeah. put on their hip and go jogging and whatever? Okay. Oh, yeah. It was super cool when I was a kid, super useful. But then what comes out? The iPod, right? I used to go buy CDs every weekend. That was like my thing with my, my parents. That would be my reward for working. I, they'd let me go buy CDs. Well, all of a sudden, CDs didn't matter anymore. Why, why buy CDs when I can have 2,000 songs on a little tiny iPod? So it was, right. ne it was never about the physical CD. It was never about the physical Walkman. It's only about how do I get the most access to the most music with the least effort, basically. So once the iPod comes out, the Walkman's a goner, right? It's just totally gone. So mm -hmm. with money, humans basically desire five, they want it to do five things. They want the money to be divisible, which is to say you can break it down into small units or combine it into large units. So you can you know, buy a cup of coffee or you can buy a house, right? It needs to be, uh, you can break it down into small units and recombine it into larger units. So you can do different transactions of different sizes. So that's the one service people want for money. The second service people want for money is durability, which basically means I want to be able to put my money in a safe or a safe place and know that it's going to be there a year later, 10 years later, 100 years later. Right. If I tried to monetize fruit, for instance, and use oranges as money, well, that's not going to work. I put oranges in a safe, come back a year later, they're going to be rotten. Right? I can't use um, food really of any kind. Uh, you can't use wood too well. So you need money that is persistent over time. So it needs to be something that I can store and it not evaporate, basically. Money needs to be portable. Pretty obvious. I need to be able to move my money from place to place. Mm -hmm. Right? I, I can't, if I'm going to buy a house in Rhode Island and I'm in Florida, well, I need to move that money to Rhode Island and give it to the guy in Rhode Island. If I can't move my money, if it's not if it's not portable or it's too expensive to move, that's a problem, right? That prevents me from being able to use it. 
money. So that's the third thing that money, the service money renders to people. The fourth one is money needs to be recognizable. Right. And this means basically that you can verify the authenticity of the money. So there needs to be some way when you give me money that I can independently check the quality of that money. If I give you gold coins, you don't need to take my word for it that it's gold. You want to be able to test it yourself. If I say it's 24 karat gold, you know, this is, if you just, if you just took someone at their word, they would, they could scam you. But if you, have, if you have a way to verify that the gold, you know, it's 24 karat gold, then that makes it recognizable. You can basically, and this is what they called assaying the value of gold. You may have heard the term sound money, perhaps. Yes. So this was actually in reference to the sound a gold coin made when dropped from a certain height. This was a way it resonated in a very specific way that let people know it was authentic, right? If it was lead plated with gold, it wouldn't sound the same. Um, and that was, there were many techniques to doing this. Um, and one thing I'll, I'll add here that's, we'll probably come back later. That's an expensive process. If every time we do a transaction, I have to stop and verify it. Like I have to run tests on it. That slows things down, right? It's, it's expensive. Oh, yes. I have to test it takes time, et cetera. So part of the reason we introduced coins was to offset that. So we would stamp the coins into standard weight, you know, like say a one ounce gold coin, we'd put a, a seal on it, a certification. And then people that were transacting with one another could then trust the reputation of that certifier, that certifying body that says, you know, this is from this mint, it's one ounce of gold. They could trust that instead of needing to verify that it's one ounce of gold at every transaction. So that was like coins made transactions more efficient because people didn't have to stop and verify at every point of transaction. You could, you could trust the coin issuer. So it made it more recognizable, we could say. Okay, so there's the four things. <laughs> money people desire for money the last one is really important and explains why gold scarcity now this isn't kind of an obscure term um commonly misunderstood in my opinion scarcity means that demand for a thing is greater than the supply of a thing. So it doesn't, people typically think scarcity is like, oh, that just means there's not much of it. That's not necessarily true, right? I can go and paint a Robert Breedlove original, but because I'm a terrible painter, there's only one of these paintings in the world, doesn't make it scarce. Nobody wants it, right? So it's not until, you know, two or more people want the painting that it develops a price people bid for it right they're 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 bidding right. that creates a market price the other example i like to give here is oxygen oxygen is clearly very valuable right we need it to live very valuable but there's so much oxygen in the world there's so much more supply than there is demand 
right? We have 8 billion people demanding oxygen with every breath, but there's so much of it that there's no price. There's no need to bid over each other, if that makes sense. So it's not scarce. It's valuable, but not scarce. Right. So that's the key point that scarcity means demand is greater than supply. There's more people that want a thing than there is a, than there is quantity of the thing to go around. Therefore, it, people bid for it and it develops a price. Money is unique though, because money, demand always exceeds supply. Because money is, again, a claim token on everything, right? I can take money into the market and I can buy anything. I can buy a house, I can buy a car, I can buy food, I can buy energy, I can buy services. It's, you know, as the, as the Austrian economists call it, the universal medium of exchange. So it's, it's the ultimate economic good, if you will. Because it's the ultimate economic good, the demand for money is always greater than the supply of money. And I think if you've been around on earth for, you know, even five minutes, you probably noticed that. Yes. yes. <laughs> so what happens in the selection process of money? So the market, people participating in the free market, trying to figure out what should be money. We naturally zero in on the thing that best satisfies those first four properties. So it's divisible, durable, recognizable, portable. But we zero in on the thing that's the most scarce, which is to say the thing that does all those things, but is hardest to produce, basically. It's hardest to increase the supply. And this is because if I'm going to hold money, I'm going to put my life's work into it, right? I'm going to go and sacrifice my time and energy to obtain this money. I want the value that I'm storing in money to be maximally resistant to other people. I don't, if I just used sand as a store of value, well, people could all run down to the beach, get a bunch of sand, produce right. a lot more of this sand money and dilute me. Right. So they could basically steal whatever value I stored in sand money. So we start working our way down, like through voluntary action, and people coalesce on the thing that's hardest to produce the money, the thing that best functions as money, but is hardest to produce. And that's gold. Gold is the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable asset in history that is the hardest to produce. And now, I'll try to answer silver too, because it's like, well, we have gold and silver. Why silver? Yes. Silver functioned successfully alongside gold for thousands of years because we had not abstracted gold into a banknote yet. We hadn't put, we, hadn't, we didn't have gold backed paper yet. And so, yeah, it was silver certificate. Yeah. So, and the, here's what happened is that gold was so scarce, in fact, that it was great for doing big transactions, but day-to-day -day transactions, it was too much. It was like to buy a, you know, a cup of coffee, for instance, or whatever the equivalent was back in the day, you would, it'd be like 
gold dust. You know, you could, it was too valuable. So you could use a smaller, something that had less economic density or value density, however you want to call it, like silver was used more for like day-to-day transactions and gold was reserved for large transactions. Now, so you can say, uh, what's the punchline there? Silver was more, silver was less scarce than gold. So therefore it functioned better as a day-to-day medium of exchange. Whereas gold was more scarce than silver and so it was, it held a lot more value. So one gold brick could, you know, buy a house or something equivalent like that. Now this changed once we started going into paper currencies, because once I have a gold backed paper currency, I now have something that's very divisible, right? I can, I could have a dollar bill that represented, you know, just a little bit of gold dust and I could buy that coffee with gold now. So it made it made gold much more transactable once I abstracted it into paper currency. So what this essentially did is there were, if you're looking at just physical gold, physical silver makes sense alongside it. So you can have, again, large transactions and small transactions. But once you abstract them into a paper currency, you've gathered all those properties of money under a gold standard effectively. Because now I have gold that's real portable, real divisible because it's just paper backed by gold. And so that essentially led to the demonetization of silver. And we've seen silver collapse in terms of gold uh, over the past several decades. I'm not sure exactly how long, but so it's a long-winded answer, but now the question here, the question by extension would be, okay, gold backed paper money, what backed gold? And again, I would zero in on that property of scarcity here, that it was the hardest thing to produce. No matter how hard we tried, nobody could counterfeit gold. Nobody could make more than, you know, say 2% per year. Um, mm-hmm. There's a couple of key points here. One, another feature of this is that because gold's indestructible, every ounce we mine every year is just added to the existing supply of gold in the world. So it's not like we're destroying gold every year. We're really just increasing the supply. But what's it, what this means right. is that we're increasing the su- supply by roughly the same or even a smaller percentage every year. So of the existing value stored in gold, it's only being diluted or inflated by around 2% per year, no matter what anyone does, right? No one knows how to counterfeit gold. Um, so it was just the ultimate store of value in that sense. So what was actually securing gold was the energy necessary to produce it, right? No one, if I could tap into a lot, if I could figure out nuclear energy back in whatever the 1500s and go and mine gold with nuclear energy somehow, I could get a lot more gold a lot faster. So I could get rich. But no one could do that, right? So it was the supply of gold is actually secured by how much energy we can allocate towards its production. So this is, and this is critical to understanding Bitcoin, 
the value of gold was protected by proof of work, effectively. If I have gold, if I have physical gold, I've proven to you that I've done some work to get it. I've either mined it or I created something of value and traded it for gold or, and this is a kind of a twisted thing because gold's physical, maybe I looted it from somebody. Maybe I, maybe I robbed them or maybe I conquered their country and stole it. So I think that's a key point. Gold is backed by energy, proof of work. And this is something that Bitcoin has emulated. Hey, everybody. As you've no doubt learned by watching this show, Bitcoin is the single most important asset you can own in the 21st century. And one of the most important companies in Bitcoin today is Nidig. Nidig's mission is to get Bitcoin into the hands of as many people as possible. One of the ways they are accomplishing this mission is by empowering banks and financial technology companies to offer their own Bitcoin products and services. As a true game changer in the industry, Nidig is safely unlocking the power of Bitcoin for forward-thinking individuals and institutions alike. Led by Robbie Gutman, Yin Zhao, and Ross Stevens, Nidig has absolutely exploded onto the Bitcoin scene recently and has quickly become a leader in this space. So whether you are a professional investor looking for asset management services or a company looking to white label your own Bitcoin product or service, consider Nidig your single source solution for everything Bitcoin. Satoshi, the creator of Bitcoin, effectively looked at the economic properties of gold. And then he combined them with the economic efficiencies enabled by the internet. And that's Bitcoin, basically. It's a synthesis of the properties of gold with the properties of the internet. And in terms of Bitcoin as a money, again, if you just evaluate it through those five services, it's divisible, right? How divisible? Well, it's as divisible as information, effectively. It's just pure digital information. So it's infinitely divisible. Because Bitcoin is stored everywhere, every computer has a record of its history. It's durable. It, you can't, to destroy Bitcoin, you'd have to destroy everyone's record of Bitcoin everywhere and every computer on earth at the same time. So the analogy I like to use here is like, it's something like the Bible. You can destroy an individual Bible. You could just, you could burn a whole pile of Bibles. But how could you ever delete the Bible from human consciousness globally? Like, again, it's just, it's everywhere and nowhere. It's just an idea. It's just code, frankly. It's just information. So the idea of a Bible, the concept of the Bible, no matter how many Bibles you burn or destroy, is not going anywhere. Right? Another one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's here, right? It's here for good, pretty much. Bitcoin's similar, just information stored everywhere. So to destroy it, you'd have to go and destroy an idea effectively, an idea that well, this is one of the things Bitcoin does, like it just copies itself everywhere. So it's like, even if you destroyed every version of Bitcoin on earth, but so long as one laptop with the full node survived, the whole thing would survive. So it's very durable, very hard to kill. Bitcoin's pure information, as we said earlier, 
So it's very portable. You can move it at the speed of light. Can't get much faster than that. Bitcoin is very recognizable in the sense that you can audit. If you send me Bitcoin, again, I just run the software, the open source software that checks the Bitcoin you sent me is authentic. And in it, the, another extension of that is you can also audit the supply of Bitcoin. So not only can I verify that the Bitcoin you've sent me is authentic or recognizable, but I can also audit the entire blockchain, the whole history of every transaction that's ever occurred. So it's very counterfeit resistant or recognizable. And then finally, this is something that's really unique. Bitcoin is infinitely scarce or perfectly scarce. It has a fixed supply of 21 million. And again, we've that's never that's not possible with a physical asset. You can't have a fixed supply of physical asset because you can't stop people from creating more of anything. But in digital space, by by rooting the Bitcoin production process in energy, which is through the Bitcoin mining process, we can get into more later. It creates a proof of work necessary to create it. And it gives you a very high assurance that no more than 21 million can ever be created. So again, if I want a money that no one else, that's hard to create, to store my value in, Bitcoin effectively perfects that. Because now I, there's a money that no one can create more of. Even if you go into mining, you can only create enough Bitcoin as the algorithm allows, which is, again, it caps out at 21 million. So it's like, I've argued in some of my writing, it's the, although Bitcoin is an invention, it represents the discovery of absolute scarcity. Everything before Bitcoin was relatively scarce. Gold was the most relatively scarce asset we ever had. That, in addition to the other properties it satisfied is why it became money. But with Bitcoin, we have discovered absolute scarcity. And it's, it's, and it gets a little complex, but it's, I argue that it's a one-time event. You can't do it again. So I'll drop it there. That Bitcoin is essentially the most, the most advanced or perfect form of money we've ever created. And in that way, I view it as disruptive to gold. And gold is still the primary money in the world today. Even though you and I, citizens don't use it, countries fight over it. Countries mm -hmm. kill each other over it. Countries hoard it. Countries produce it. You know, It's still the most important asset in the world. And, I, and it's not my opinion. It's like, okay, China is the biggest producer of gold and the biggest buyer of gold. They're also printing money like crazy. So basically countries are just printing money but they're also buying gold at the same time because they know they're making their money worthless and that gold's the only thing that matters. So it's like, you don't need to look at what they say about gold. Just look at what they do. They buy and hoard gold. They print and externalize paper money. So that was a very long answer. Um, <laughs> I'll send it back to you. <laughs> well, I'm wrapping my head around it all. So you answered the question, how much exists? It's the 21 million. Um, and my other question was, can you create more like money? So that would be a no, right? Because you only have that certain amount. For Bitcoin, it is a no. Yes. Okay. Okay. So how can you buy things with it? Like the, the 
average citizen. <laughs> well, that's a great question. And today, well, let me let me analogize it first to gold. Again, you end up in these deep historical rabbit holes trying to answer <laughs> questions about Bitcoin. That's why gold is such a useful study. Initially, people would find gold and they just appreciated it for its luster, effectively, right? You see shiny gold pebbles in, yep. a, in a brook or a riverbed and you want to scoop it out and it's pretty and it's shiny and it looks like the sun. And you want to keep that, right? And you want to adorn, adorn yourself with it. So people make jewelry out of it. They, so it creates, initially, there's this demand for gold purely as a collectible. People just gathering gold, collecting it, um, and then passing it across generations, actually. Because, you know, again, gold's indestructible. So you make some really nice earrings out of gold. Um, it's also a very malleable metal. So it lends itself well to jewelry making and, and things like this coinage and then people pass it across generations as well so the initial demand for gold is just as a collectible well over time people see other people valuing gold collecting gold it and more gold is produced and effectively becomes increasingly valuable right and so here's maybe one way to think about that Again, if gold is the hardest commodity to increase the supply of, everything else by definition is easier to produce than gold. So as we economize and we trade and we produce more goods and services, every unit of gold is worth more goods and services, right? Because we're producing more goods and services, but less gold. So if, if we're talking about relative scarcity, the gold would be increasing in price. Uh, I do price in quotations, Mark, because it's not like a dollar price. It's just in terms of goods and services. Maybe a gold nugget was worth one chicken in the year. I'm just making stuff up here. 4,000 BC. And then by the year 1,000 BC, it's worth five chickens. You, you know what I mean? Like there's more, we're producing more chickens than we are gold. So each unit of gold can be redeemed for more chickens as just an arbitrary example. So what does that mean? That means gold is effectively storing economic value over time. So what was once a collectible becomes a store of value. And we're, so what's happening here is we're, we're progressing through the evolutionary phases of money. So we've gone from collectible to store of value. What happens next? Well, gold, when it reaches a certain threshold that it stores enough economic value that those who have it have an incentive to trade it for, for things, for goods and services, right? That the point that gold nugget right. hits the value of 20 chickens or whatever arbitrary number is, all of a sudden I'm like, as a rational market actor, hey, maybe I want 20 chickens. That sounds like a lot of chicken to me. I'm gonna give away this gold nugget that was worth one chicken a few hundred years ago. Whatever, I'm just totally arbitrarily <laughs> making, number, making numbers up to uh, illustrate the dynamic. So what happens then is that eventually this commodity that's hard to produce gold reaches a threshold of storing enough economic value that it's incentivizing people to spend it 
to trade it, right? To circulate it, to buy chickens, whatever else with it. So it becomes a medium of exchange. People start creating coins and transacting in it. Uh, there's also another element here that's really important. As we're creating more economic surplus, this is also the emergence of government and the state, because what we needed was to protect these goods and services we're creating through trade from plunderers, right? If you don't have an army or security of some kind, people from the outside are gonna come take your stuff. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> so you have to have a protection producing enterprise that we today call the government. In fact, it was the proto-government that emerged alongside economic savings. The genesis of the state and money are very interconnected. So as gold is monetizing, for instance, the state would demand payments from its citizens, typically in the money of the realm. And typically they would monopolize that money and say, it needs to have the king's face on it. Otherwise, it's not accepted here, something like that. So that is part of the progression of money is we're getting from store value to a medium of exchange where both individuals have an incentive to spend it and trade it. And also the state is demanding payment in it for taxes. So when you go to pay that protection producing enterprise, he demands you pay him in a certain form of money. Typically he wants the money that's most uh, widely valued, which would be gold in most instances. Mm -hmm could also be silver and it's been other metals, but predominantly gold. Finally, once enough people are trading in this money and it's circulating widely, you actually start to think in the money, right? Because you're, how much is a car? Car is $40,000. How much is that house? It's $440,000. I could equivalently say that house, that $440,000 house cost 11 $40,000 cars. So if someone said, hey, how much did you buy your house for? Oh, 11 cars. I mean, you don't say that. Why? Because it's not efficient, right? We need a common, again, back to protocols. We need a common language of economic numeracy. So this is like the last evolutionary stage of money is once there's a money circulating widely enough, we actually start to denominate prices in it and think in it. We think in the money, through the money, if you will, just like we think in words. We don't commonly stop to think about this, but like when you're thinking what's happening, you have some internal dialogue that's probably in your native tongue. If you're bilingual, it could be in one of either languages. Um, so there's this, I call it, this is called a psychotechnology or a, or a human software, if you will. Money is the same. It embeds itself in our mind. So it becomes closely related to our mind. So that's it. That's the evolutionary sequence of money, collectible, store value, medium of exchange, unit of account. That's how gold monetize effectively. So again, we take that framework and we look at Bitcoin, what's happening? Well, initially it was a collectible. This project emerged. There was more supply for Bitcoin than there was demand. So there was no market price. People were literally giving it away in the early days. You'd go and click a button on the internet and get 50 free Bitcoin in the early days. It was crazy. You know, it was just a joke. It's like, whatever. Well, people start collecting this thing. Like, well, it's strictly finite. You know, 
and it's kind of useful. It's, I can transact online without asking anyone permission. There's a supply that no one can change. Uh, you know, again, it's kind of all theoretical in the beginning because it hadn't really solidified, but it was a it was the theoretical framework, I guess, for Bitcoin. So it's a collectible initially with no value. Well, eventually people start transacting in it. The, the, the infamous example is the guy that bought two pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. And so 10,000 Bitcoin today, uh, I don't what is that? $470 million, something like that. It's a, it's a staggering number. So at that moment, Bitcoin develops a market price effectively. You could say, whatever, two pizzas are $40 divided by 10,000 Bitcoin. Um, there's your market price. And so people start to actually trade Bitcoin on exchanges for dollars and other currencies. So at that point, it's becoming, it's, it's transformed from a collectible into a store of value, at least a little bit, storing a little bit of value. Um, and then once people start using it, actually even in that, it's sort of, everything in Bitcoin's happening a lot faster. Again, that, that history of gold I described, took thousands of years. But all of this stuff that's happening with Bitcoin is on this hugely compressed time frame. The whole thing's happened in the past 13 years. So it goes from collectible to like store value to medium of exchange. But the incentive with Bitcoin still today is to save in it because it's worth, the whole network's worth, call it a trillion dollars. It's a little bit less than that. All the money in the world, we'll just say it's worth more than $100 trillion. So my incentive as an economic actor dealing with Bitcoin is to save in Bitcoin. I want to save the scarce money. I want to spend the unscarce money. I want to spend and borrow dollars, and I want to save Bitcoin. That's the rational action. Because dollars go down in value as they produce more and more and more. And Bitcoin, in theory at least, as we produce less and less and less, will go up in value in terms of dollars. So Bitcoin is predominantly being used as a store of value today, although it is also used as a medium of exchange. These aren't bright lines. These are just sort of gradients, right? It shifts from one phase to the other. And the theory is at least one day when Bitcoin becomes fully monetized, that will actually denominate prices in Bitcoin. We won't say this house costs $440,000, we'll say this house costs 120,000 sats, something, I don't know, whatever the number will be. Um, sats are, each Bitcoin's divisible into 100 million sats. I probably should have mentioned that earlier. Oh, wow. So to answer that particular question, that's why Bitcoin is not widely accepted as a medium of exchange yet. It's still monetizing. It's still in this store value phase. But that being said, it is accepted more and more generally by more and more merchants every day. Um, I myself, you know, I run a, a business in the space. All of my contractors are Bitcoiners. They all want to be paid in Bitcoin. So I pay them. I pay them via the Lightning Network. So I use Bitcoin as money now. I denominate, I actually denominate my personal financial position in Bitcoin. 
I don't care so much about what my dollar net worth is. I want to increase my Bitcoin denominated net worth. Otherwise, what am I doing? I could just hold Bitcoin and not work. If I'm not increasing my Bitcoin balance, if I don't have cash flows denominated in Bitcoin, then it doesn't make sense to me. So I've joked, if it don't make sense, it don't make sense. So, but we like people like me, these are people expecting Bitcoin to continue to monetize based on their study of history. So it's not, again, I'm, I'm like almost like jumping ahead to the unit of account stage, right? I'm accounting for myself in Bitcoin, but I wouldn't anticipate others doing that for many decades to come. Like it, Bitcoin has a long ways to go before people do that generally. So I hope that helped answer that question. <laughs> Okay. So we're not there. To jump in. To... Josh is here. Hi, mom. I wanted to jump Hi. in and um, touch on a point. She asked a question earlier and you, you, you answered uh, who created Bitcoin, but she asked kind of what keeps it safe or why is it safe? Mm -hmm. And the security of Bitcoin, you touched on altcoins and, you know, answering what is crypto. And I think your answer probably seemed a little scary. Or if I'm watching this and I'm putting myself in um, someone else who's 60 years old, I'm saying, well, yeah, there's all these scams. That's why I'm not going to bother learning it. Uh, differentiating the you know, scams from what might be a good investment for you know, why Bitcoin isn't, how to avoid those scams, how to make an investment in Bitcoin safely, I think is something that we definitely need to touch on because we kind of glossed over some of that. And your answer kind of sounded scary not to you know it was a good answer but satoshi nakamoto is this you know figure no one knows who he is and there's a lot of scams in crypto um that could be a takeaway from that answer from before i think the short answer anyway. to that would be really focus on bitcoin um i hope in my earlier explanation that the difference of bitcoin being the internet of money and everything else being liquid venture capital like that's the bright line I draw. They are not the same animals. They're two different hemispheres of the universe, if you will. Okay. Um, so my general advice is to avoid scams, just only focus on Bitcoin, only acquire Bitcoin, treat it like a savings technology. Um, I also advise treating it as a long-term savings technology. This is not something, if you're on a six month, you know, you have a six month runway, or whatever your monthly expenses are 10,000 a month, you have $60,000. I don't recommend dumping your $60,000 savings into Bitcoin. Like you should have adequate financial runway to take care of yourself and satisfy your expenses. Hopefully you have income. Hopefully, you, you know, you make more than you spend and you have positive net income. And you're just taking a little bit of that and putting it into long-term savings every paycheck or month or whatever. So the punchline there would be focus on Bitcoin. I'd recommend buying Bitcoin to the tune of an amount you can really buy and forget about for four to five plus years. Again, that's something you want to spend in the short run because the volatility, the cycles are uncertain. We don't know. We're in the most uncertain economic circumstances we've ever been in worldwide. We've been printing money ad infinitum for over a hundred years. And it's 
rapidly accelerated in the past 18 months. So Bitcoin could go way up, it could go way down. We're like in really scary uncharted territory. Now you can protect yourself from all of that, still gain exposure to Bitcoin by really just buying it. I always advocate for dollar cost averaging. So I myself, I buy Bitcoin, I have it set through a service, automatically buying Bitcoin every single day, automatically withdrawing it to cold storage. So it's a fixed amount of dollars every day. And again, I run a business, I make more money than I spend. I send a percentage of that to buy Bitcoin every single day, put it into cold storage, which we can talk about later. And then I also, because my income's not fixed, it fluctuates every month. I'm an entrepreneur, I've got multiple streams of income. This also gives me the opportunity to be opportunistic on Bitcoin price dips. So if Bitcoin dips 10%, 20%, 30%, I can then go in addition to my daily buy, I can also take a chunk of change or a chunk of dollars and go buy even more Bitcoin when the price is down. So to acquire it safely, you know, use one of these reputable exchanges. Um, I'm an advisor to Swan Bitcoin. They're linked on my page. That's one that I prefer to use. Um, there's plenty of them out there. You know, Kraken's a big US-based exchange. Strike is now, you can buy Bitcoin on Strike. Um, I don't like Coinbase, but they're the, the behemoth. You can buy Bitcoin that way. Pretty sure, pretty soon, you're gonna be able to buy Bitcoin in your local bank, thanks to companies like Nidig. So Nidig, they're, they're typically reserved for high net worth customers. So it's not a good um, kind of consumer way to buy Bitcoin, but they're enabling, they're extending technologies into the banking system that allow that will allow you to buy Bitcoin directly from your online banking. So that's coming. That's not available yet, but it's, it's right around the corner. Um, you know, like any product, you need to do your homework, kind of vet the provider, and then ultimately always take self-custody. You know, we haven't talked about this yet, but it's the difference between leaving your gold, your quote unquote gold in a bank, and now you need to trust that bank versus taking delivery of your gold. And like, you don't need to trust anyone, right? You trust yourself. You've got the mm -hmm. gold and you've secured it. Uh, there's a lot of aspects to self-custody that are important to talk about, but um, ultimately Bitcoin not in your custody is not Bitcoin. It's a Bitcoin IOU. And anything you've heard, again, back to the topic of safety, the, the hacks you hear about in Bitcoin, it's never Bitcoin. Bitcoin's never been hacked. Bitcoin's the most secure computing network in human history. It's essentially flawless for it's been flawless for 13 years now it's had snags and things it's computer it's a computer project but it's it is it has adhered to its supply cap and its original design schematics virtually perfectly despite any issues it's it's overcome the hacks you hear about are when people have entrusted their bitcoin to a custodian of some kind whether it's an exchange or whatever, and then that exchange or custodian loses their Bitcoin, either through fraud or theft or hacking. So 
I guess that's the punchline that you invest in Bitcoin safely by focusing on Bitcoin, <laughs> avoiding crypto, taking delivery of your Bitcoin into self-custody. The particular mode of self-custody I recommend is geographically distributed multi-sig wallet, which means you take, we're maybe getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but to hold physical Bitcoin is to just hold a string of information called your private key. It's a little bit dangerous to hold that private key yourself because now someone could come and torture you or whatever, or try to extort you to get that, that um, information. What you can do with multi-sig is chop that key into pieces and distribute it to, you know, two out of three people or three out of five people are necessary to unlock the Bitcoin. So you can add these additional security features where you get the other danger of holding the key yourself is if you lose the key, you're toast, right? If you lose your, think of it like a password, effectively. If you lose your password, there's no Bitcoin headquarters to call and say, please reset my password. It's a bearer asset. It's like burying your gold in your backyard and forgetting where you buried it. You're just, you're toast. Only it's worse, because I guess you'd use a metal detector if you buried the gold and forgot where you buried it. But with Bitcoin, you lose your private key, you're toast, your money's gone. So in multi-sig, you get redundancy, because now if it's two out of three, you can lose one of the keys and you're still okay. Or three out of five, you could lose two of the keys and you're still okay. Redundancy plus self-sovereignty or control or authority over your money, right? No one can, you're not, you have no counterparty risk. You're not trusting a custodian to hold it for you. You are custodying it yourself. Did that answer that question? Yes. I think so. I don't know where Josh is. I'm here. I was, I was letting him wrap up. It, it, I just remember she said, why is it safe? And we kind of glossed over that with explaining the origins and who created it. Uh, and, and I guess what you just, you know, you explain a high level safety mechanism um, for the, you know, multi-sig, uh, keeping your, your, your keywords safe. But back to just sort of the summary answer to why is Bitcoin safe? And why is crypto unsafe? I think that's sort of, if we can summarize that answer to her question of you know, what, makes, what makes any of it safe? Um, because I know there are some coins that will say, oh, they are safer because of this, or they're better because of these reasons. Uh, and like you've said, there's a lot of scams out there. So how does, how does Linda know, right? How does my mom know that if she buys, you know, $100 worth of Bitcoin, that it's safe, right? What makes it safe from a principle or maybe an analogy uh, standpoint? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, the, hmm, the word, it's kind of a loaded term too, to say like, is it safe? Um, you know, everything, everything carries risk of some kind. So clearly the big risk with Bitcoin is that it's 13 years old. It's a project Nothing like it has ever existed before. It's a total breakthrough. It's 13 years in. It's an experiment. But it's an experiment, again, as I touched on earlier, that's been running virtually perfectly for 13 years straight. Exactly what it said it would do, it has been doing. So the big difference, I guess, in terms of safety between Bitcoin and all other crypto assets 
is that Bitcoin has a proven track record of no one being able to change its rules. There have been a lot of efforts. Uh, you could read about the block size wars of 2017. There was an ideological schism in Bitcoin where one group of Bitcoiners thought we needed larger blocks, which are basically um, groupings of transactions. So Bitcoin creates these blocks of transactions every 10 minutes. Well, one side of the debate thought that Bitcoin needed larger blocks so we could do more transactions on Bitcoin's main chain. The other side of the, of the divide thought that we needed to keep block size small so that everyone could run a full node very, on very inexpensive hardware. And it would, it would prevent Bitcoin from being centralized into fewer hands. Like you would need large, you need more and more expensive computer equipment to validate the blockchain. Therefore, it wouldn't work on a laptop. Therefore, it would, it would start to centralize control and governance over Bitcoin into larger players, basically. So this was the, the divide. Well, so basically the, the one group wanted to change the rules. They said, we need bigger blocks. Well, what happened? They divide. They each create their own copy of Bitcoin. One goes on, you know, adhering to Bitcoin's original design principles. The other group forks Bitcoin, which is say they, they copy paste Bitcoin and then run it with its this, these new and updated rules. And then people choose, basically, users of Bitcoin decide, am I going to run Bitcoin Core or am I going to run Bitcoin Cash? Cash is the changed rules, core is the original rule set. And then through that voting, which is also driven by, not only by the software they're running on their node, but also what, what they're buying and selling, right? The market votes, the market selects which one is going to be successful. And the changed rule set, Bitcoin Cash, has collapsed in price in terms of Bitcoin Core since the fork of late 2017. So Bitcoin's the only Bitcoin Core is the only asset that has this proven track record of resisting impositions or um, opinions or political attacks of others. So in my, as I've described Bitcoin, it's the only asset in the world that has credible immunity to opinion. No one in the world no one, no company, no nation state can change it. It's an unbreakable rule set. And it's pretty straightforward. Total supply of 21 million, new block every 10 minutes, and the block size is fixed at what it's fixed at. Um, now there's other divides that could come about. You know, one of them is privacy. You know, Bitcoin's not perfectly anonymous at the base layer. So maybe there's going to be a fork at some point about that. Um, We'll see, but so that makes Bitcoin different, and that is like it has the it's battle proven, it has battle scars, it has um, Lindy effect. There's a whole number of things you could use to describe this. That it, it's proven its value proposition over time, whereas every other crypto asset, somebody controls someone's opinion, some foundation. 
you know, some company, they can change the rules. And you could even look at Ethereum, which is the number two crypto asset. It's had a bajillion rule changes, hard forks, you know, the Dow disaster. They're trying to move the proof of stake now. Like it's just a, it's a mess. Whereas Bitcoin is just laid out this very simple value proposition for itself. And despite the attacks that have come down upon it, it has survived and thrived. So to boil it all the way down, I guess when we say safe, what do we actually mean? We mean safe from other humans. <laughs> Bitcoin has proven that it's safe from other humans. Everything else is controlled by humans. So we've created, this is another very mind blowing thing about Bitcoin. It's the first man-made contrivance that man can no longer control. We can't go out, we can't change the rules of Bitcoin. I mean, you can, but you're, it's against the individual self-interest of all market actors. So to try and petition people to have 42 million instead of 21 million Bitcoin, you'd have to convince everyone that holds Bitcoin of something that contradicts their own self-interest. It's in my self-interest as a holder to always run the Bitcoin code that has 21 million. If you try to get me to run one that has 42 million, that means I'm going to give up 50% of my wealth to somebody. That doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense. How are you going to convince me to do that? So this is what in game theory, they call a shelling point. It's like Bitcoin has just perfected the properties of money to the advantage of individual holders. So to try to break that social cohesion, you would have to violate individual human self-interest. You'd have to get people to go against their own self-interest. So I hope that helps. A node is essentially a local software installation of Bitcoin. So I would be running an entire, again, everything that Bitcoin has ever done throughout all of history for 13 years, every transaction would be downloaded to my computer. And then other computers around the world, other nodes are running the same software. And they're, all of these computer programs are effectively checking one another's work or auditing one another. So it is the way that we optimize the recognizability of Bitcoin as money, um, or you could say the auditability or the verifiability. There's no, again, there's nothing, because there's nothing hidden, Bitcoin is 0% trust effectively. You're not trusting anyone. You're trusting math. You're trusting computer science. You're trusting individual self-interest. And um, your 0% trust, 100% verification is one way to think about it. So it's, it's minimizing the need to trust anyone, which is one of the main purposes of money, by the way. Uh, again, with gold, you wanted to store your value in something that no one's opinion could change the supply of. That was one of its core value props. This is what Nick Zabo calls trust minimization. So money is an instrument of trust minimization. It's a place I can put my wealth that I know it's maximally secure from the, anyone's attempts at co-opting it or stealing it or inflating it. So another way to think about a node, because this will, this will relate it to mining, um, you choose which version of Bitcoin to run. 
you can literally you run whatever form of Bitcoin you want. You can fork Bitcoin right now and again create you know Bitcoin dash Linda, run it, have fun, you know, make whatever changes you want, campaign other people to talk, try to tell them it's the next Bitcoin, blah blah blah, do whatever you want. But you can't coerce anyone to running any form of Bitcoin. Everyone's just it's just downloading whatever version of software you want. So you can think of, what's the analogy here? It's like choosing which language to speak or choosing uh, which set of rules to use in a chess game, something like that. Every individual chooses. You choose whatever version you want. And then, so by analogy there, it's like, okay, you can go and fork Bitcoin, but I like this analogy that you could also go and fork the, the rules of chess, fork the game of chess, add new pieces, change the way knights move, do whatever. You do whatever you want, right? Chess is open source code. We all know how to play it. You can look it up. It's everywhere and nowhere. But if you fork the rules of chess and try to go start playing, no one's going to play with you, right? It's like these <laughs> rules don't make any sense. Like you're just making stuff up. There's a shelling point in chess, right, around the rules. And it's an even stronger shelling point in money because you're talking about people's economic energy. This isn't just a game. You know, it is a game sort of, but it's a game that's very serious, has very real world implications. So if I just arbitrarily decide to willy nilly change the rules of money or start playing some different game, I'm risking myself. I'm putting my, my hard earned work, the fruits of my labor at risk, making such a change. So. The node that I choose, the software that I choose to run on my computer is the node. I'm deciding which language to speak or which rules to abide by. And then the mining network itself is actually enforcing those rules. Whatever rules are selected by the individual nodes, miners through this game of it's a game. It's like a microcosm of capitalism in a way they're competing to solve a mathematical puzzle and win the new Bitcoin that's issued with each new block. And the energy that they're expending towards solving that puzzle is what's enforcing and protecting the rule set in the network. And so it's a, quite complicated. <laughs> I'll use another analogy here. The more The more valuable Bitcoin becomes, the more secure its computing network tends to become because there's a, there's a virtual cycle here where let's say Bitcoin goes up in price, that makes mining, the mining competition more profitable. This makes more people invest in mining. Anyone can mine anywhere in the world. You just plug in these miners to any energy source and enter the competition. That makes as more, uh, this is called hash power. This is the energy being devoted to Bitcoin mining. As more hash power comes online, Bitcoin as a monetary network becomes more secure, right? We've, we've added more energy to the, the economic network. This increases demand for its utility as a store of value, right? This money is even more secure now from, um, from attack, basically. 
So this would lead to more people buying Bitcoin. Bitcoin price goes up further. Increasing the Bitcoin price further makes, makes mining more profitable. More profitable mining leads to more hash power coming online. More hash power coming online leads to greater demand of store value. So there's this flywheel effect, this virtuous cycle of Bitcoin adoption, which I've described as like a vortex of incentives that no one knows how to break. No one knows how to break this thing. It's been spinning out of control from zero to a, you know almost a trillion dollars over the past 13 years. No one knows how to change this dis or disrupt this vortex of incentives. So by way of analogy, you could think of Bitcoin as something like a safe to put your money in, but the more money you put in it, the thicker the walls and the harder to crack the safe becomes. And um, I'll leave it there for now. Bitcoin mining is really complex, but... Um, to tie it back to gold, again, by way of analogy, just like think of it as a gold miner, right? Again, they're expending energy to mine gold. We're doing the same thing only with mathematical computer processes versus, you know, picks and shovels and machines digging gold out of the ground. It's an energy expenditure that cannot be counterfeit. You can't counterfeit work or energy. So it, it secures the supply and integrity of the monetary network that is Bitcoin in the same way that proof of work secured gold. Donnie, you know what mining is, Mom? Vaguely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good analogy with the safe. Robert, I think is a great analogy. Another one that I've heard and that I've now used is that if you want to know how much will it cost me to mine one bitcoin and if the price of bitcoin is fifty thousand dollars basically you're going to have to spend fifty thousand dollars on electricity and that's computers right. to mine one bitcoin and yep. so that's one way to think about what mining is it's just how much money do i need to spend to get a bitcoin yeah right? okay yeah. and here's another analogy that may resonate as you can think of we, we mentioned hash power as new mining energy coming online you can think of each hash, which these Bitcoin miners are just generating billions of guesses to solve that puzzle. That's what a hash is. Each hash is a guess. By way of analogy, you could say each hash is like a lottery ticket. You're spending money in terms of energy to buy this lottery ticket. You're buying billions of lottery tickets in rapid succession. And then every now and then, you know, you win one and, it, and you win in proportion to Every miner is casting, is buying these lottery tickets. So you win in proportion to how many lottery tickets you're buying compared to the whole. So if my hash power, and I'm just making up numbers here, it's actually done in terms of energy. If there's 100,000 hashes being cast around the world and I'm casting 10,000 of them, I have a 10% chance of winning. And then every 10 minutes, that lottery pays out. Basically, it pays out a number of Bitcoin and then the lottery starts again. So it's a, it's a competition. It's an energy competition within the, the frame of structured mathematics that's, that bootstraps and protects the Bitcoin network. Wouldn't, wouldn't also one way to think of it is not so much. So this is one of the things that I'm trying to put myself in 
an older generation's mindset and you say lottery and I think, well, you know, that's a bad, I don't want to be in a lottery in my money. Yeah. It's um, just an analogy. Really have <laughs> yes. You no, know, it's a good analogy of how, how, how mining works and like mm -hmm. what the computers are actually doing. But what you might say is it's not a lottery because you can join a pool with a lot of other people. And then when one Bitcoin gets rewarded, when that lottery ticket hits, you get your share. Yes. Right? Yeah. And that's exactly why they so, do that to smooth out their revenue exactly. curves. But yeah, it, it, I'm not by any means comparing Bitcoin to the state lottery. Actually, it's the precise <laughs> no, opposite. That with, that, with that analogy, it works for, for mining. But again, the simple, you know, I, I don't have a high level analysis of uh, Bitcoin mining. And I hear, well, it's like a lottery ticket. I'm like, ah, no thanks. Yeah. Right. But it's really much much more complex, but uh, it's much better than that with mining pools. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah. Just using the lottery analogy because it's just a guess is what I'm, you know, just like when you buy a lottery ticket and you're like, they're going to draw some random numbers next week. I'm just going to guess which numbers they are. That's as far as that analogy goes. <laughs> I actually consider the state lottery a regressive tax on the poor. Bitcoin is not that. Bitcoin actually hopefully disrupts state lotteries in the long run. Yeah, it won't be long before there'll be a lottery altcoin for sure. Um, yeah. Mom, what's your what's your next follow up question? Or did did all that make sense? Or is there anything in there that you want to ask about? No, I I think that's I think that covers it. Um, most of my questions that I've written down, I think, have been answered. Um, because I think like one of the other ones was how many kinds, you know, of crypto are out there, but yeah, this is he, good just, he, he discussed that in the beginning a little bit. So, um, we really, you know, make of, yeah, right. <laughs> make somebody, all you kids buy it and then it will be good. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so the next question that I think that you asked that was really, really good. We covered kind of how you can buy things with it and that we're in that the infancy stage of it getting there. There are Bitcoin ATMs around in certain places, but the what is it worth? That was an interesting one that I, I, I'm curious of the answer to, right? And like, how, how do you plan on answering that, Robert? The question is, what is Bitcoin worth? Correct. Like why, I guess, I guess a better phrasing of the question would be, why is it 40,000 and why is it 50,000? Why does it hit 70,000? You know, because um, that kind of falls into one of the other questions, you know, what are the risks and why is it a good investment? They all kind of, I think, coalesce um, to that question of, you know, why is it worth what it's worth at any particular time? And, and for someone who maybe doesn't trade stocks or thinks that the stock market might be risky and, you know, um, not to overuse the word, but there have been a lot of scams in stocks, right? Yeah. And companies would disappear. So, you know, Bitcoin is it related to the pricing and why it's a good investment and the risks. Yeah, it's, it's a good question. So I will start from the substrate of what we discussed earlier in that scarcity occurs when there's more demand for a thing than there is quantity of the thing, right? There's, there's inherently a dispute to resolve, frankly, right? If there are 
I just, there are 10 Leonardo da Vinci paintings in the world, but there are 10,000 people that want one. Well, then those 10,000 people are going to bid with one another, right? They're going to, they're going to offer up goods and services or money to try and acquire one of these paintings. So that bidding process is the market process, right? You have buyers and sellers for anything where demand exceeds supply any which is to say all scarce economic goods so what something is worth at any given point again is it's a matter of exchange ratio most fundamentally as we said earlier i could say this 440,000 house dollar house costs 11 $40,000 cars but that it's silly to talk like that. So we talk in money instead, but most fundamentally everything trades at some ratio of everything else. And it's being updated all the time. It's like whatever the last trade was. So, you know, something that exchanges very rapidly, like a, uh, say a stock certificate, there's a lot of liquidity around that. It's being traded often. So it has very accurate price discovery right? The, the market, so you have, maybe another way to think about this is economic demand itself globally. It's like all, all everyone's wants and desires in the world superimposed on top of the supplies of available capital. So everyone's competing to get their share of whatever it is, right? Food, water, house, car, everything. And that process is prices are being discovered through the actual ac actions of people when people actually buy and sell it's not a matter of like what do you think a house is worth no one cares what you think the market's zeroing in on what humans are actually doing like how much are people actually sacrificing to obtain a house or a car and that price is is being dynamically updated in all different markets all over the world right it's it's very it's the most complex system there is really. And so when we say, what is something worth? What are we in fact saying is like, what are people currently giving up to obtain the thing? All right. What are people currently giving up to obtain a share of Amazon stock? Well, I could go and look at the quote and I don't know what the price is. It's a thousand bucks a share. Um, that's what it's worth in that moment. So with Bitcoin specifically, it's just another one of those commodities in this, you know, huge complex system of global trade, but people are valuing it based on the credibility of its monetary properties. And people are, and this is the big thing about Bitcoin that's, that I would say contributes to its volatility. Now, first thing in terms of volatility, we're talking about it's price denominated in dollars, which is a really important thing. Again, we're thinking in dollars because it is the existing unit of account. The secondary thing is that the market through the actions, the free actions of buying and selling of everyone is trying to figure out what is Bitcoin? Is it magic internet money that's going to zero? No one's ever gonna want to use it. The demand will just go away. And again, if demand say there's only demand for 5 million Bitcoin in the world, well, then Bitcoin's price goes to zero because 
there's 20 million in circulation or whatever the number is. Maybe I think it's like 18 million right now, 18 and a half, maybe 19. So there would be more supply than there is demand. Therefore, there would be no price. Bitcoin would not be scarce. Or is Bitcoin based on the credibility? Again, what we said earlier, like people are seeking services from money. They want it to be divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, scarce. Do we anticipate that people will gravitate to Bitcoin as money, seeing that it is the most divisible, durable, recognizable, portable, scarce monetary technology? So the market's literally trying to sort out, is Bitcoin zero or is it the most momentous monetary innovation there has ever been? So it's either worth zero or it's worth over $100 trillion. And this reality of demand on Bitcoin, it's based somewhat, you could say it's based on a cognitive understanding, like people that have studied monetary history. I'm basically anticipating others coming to this realization at some point, but I don't have to anticipate them coming to this cognitively necessarily. This can also, and here, there's a very simple definition for Bitcoin. It is an insurance policy on central banking. The more dollars they print, the more valuable Bitcoin becomes in terms of dollars. Because you have more dollars chasing less Bitcoin. So again, if you're betting on individual self-interest, Darwinian, this Darwinian reality, right? Everyone's, every individual economic actor on balance is going to act in their own individual self-interest. What does that mean in the sphere of fiat currency? Well, it means they're going to keep printing money and they're going to print more and more money. And so I can bet on that side of self-interest. And then if I look at the other side of self-interest with Bitcoin as an insurance policy on that, my incentive is to accumulate more of the insurance policy as they print more dollars. So there's this game, it's a game theoretic consideration. I hope I'm not getting too abstract here that you're actually looking at what you think is going to happen. This, you're doing this with every action, by the way. When you buy a car, it's because you think you're probably going to need to drive to work or do other things over the next few years, right? You'll buy the car that suits your needs or desires or your wants. You'll buy the house in the place where you want to live and raise kids or do whatever. So everything we buy and sell, like it is, we're speculating on the future. It's kind of a dirty word. You say speculating, people are like, oh, it sounds like gambling. It's like, no, every human action is speculative. There can be more risky and less risky actions, but it's all speculative. So what is Bitcoin worth? It is whatever the market says it's worth at any given moment. What can it be worth? It is for the market to discern but people like myself and other Bitcoiners spend thousands of hours studying the history of money and how it got to today to try and anticipate where we're going. Um, and, you know, it's the word worth is a very deep word because it pertains to value. And so a more fundamental question is like, what is value or worth? And very deep philosophical question, but I would try to sum it up by saying value is relevance 
to an individual's goal-directed action. So I'm trying to do things in the world, anything that accelerates me to the attainment of an aim is valuable to me. If my aim is to eat and I have a garden with a bunch of fruit, well, that's great. That garden's valuable to me because I want to eat and I can't eat air, but I can eat the fruit that the garden bears. So it's accelerating me to my aim of eating. If I wanna go from New York to LA and all I have are shoes, it's gonna take me a long time. It'll take me a really long time to walk from New York to LA, but if I have a car, the car is valuable to me because it accelerates me to the achievement of my aim. If I have a jet, it's even more valuable to me. So what we're when we say what what is it worth or what is its value? And then here's another definition of money that is somewhat simple, I think, but fundamental. It's, like, it's just a tool for moving value across time and space. So it's like, which one of these tools is going to be most useful to other humans for moving value across time and space? You're betting on that. Okay. I know dollars are terrible at holding value across time. Literally the worst investment you can make. Over the course of 100 years, the dollar loses like 98% of its value, just looking at empirically at history. And we're printing them faster than ever. So it's probably going to be even worse over the next hundred. I don't think the dollar will survive, you know, as I've said. So, okay. If it's not going to hold value across time, it works for space. I can move dollars pretty good across space, not on weekends, not on nights. Not if I get in trouble with the government, you know, they can turn, you're not, you don't really own your money, by the way, you've got an IOU from the bank. They can turn it off at any time. Like you're renting your money and the rents do every second and it's called inflation. So whether you realize it or not, like you're getting milked all the time holding dollars. So, okay, well, I guess I need to look at gold or Bitcoin then. And, you know, gold's great for holding value over time, but it's a real pain in the ass to move it across space. It's heavy. You know, I can't beam it around the world on a telecommunications channel. So then you look at Bitcoin it's like, okay, you can't make any more of it. You can't dilute it. It's 21 million fixed and it's pure information. I can move it at the speed of light. Seems like a good choice for moving value across time and space. I think other humans will figure this out too. As again, more <laughs> central banks print money, you're taxing humans, you're taxing people, you're stealing from people. Whether people get it or not, they're going to feel it. They're going to feel it when they try, hey, I used to be able to buy a pound of steak on an hour's wages. And now it takes me three hours wages to get a pound of steak. What's going on here? Huh, this Bitcoin thing keeps going up in dollar value. It's been around for 15 years. You know, I'm, I'm hypothesizing into the future here. Maybe I should buy some of that. So you're, it's a game theoretic anticipation of individual self-interest playing out in these different monetary systems. So I hope that answers the question a little bit. It's like, what is it worth? It's whatever the market says it's worth. That's like the final answer. But you're accumulating it now at a certain price in anticipation of its worth or value becoming higher to other people. It's relevance in other people's lives is going to become greater in the view of Bitcoiners in the future. So they're accumulating it now. As you would do with anything, right? If you knew there was a big hurricane coming to your local town three months in advance, somehow you saw it in a crystal ball. 
well, a good economic move might be to stockpile a bunch of wood and building materials, right? And then you can sell them at a premium when the storm hit or after the storm hit. It's just an example, yes. like you're anticipating the future. That's what entrepreneurs do, actually. We're trying to map. This is all the entrepreneur does. Look at history, look at my surroundings, try to get some directional idea of where the world's going, and then take my present action and fit it to that future. I'm speculating about the future, but then I'm fitting my present action to that future such that I benefit. That's all the entrepreneur is doing. So that's Bitcoin's worth in a nutshell, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Linda. Does all that make sense? Or what other follow-up questions do you have, please? Well, the, the only other question I have is like taxes. Like uh, income ta taxes, because I get taxed the max. So anytime mm -hmm. I make a bonus, it's it's maxed. Um, and I'm just wondering, and I know how it works with the stocks. Is it the same kind of thing where you know, you pay taxes on the money, then you buy the stock, you have to report it. You, you, I mean, all that good stuff. Yes. So Bitcoin, it's regulated differently under different bodies. And you may have to check my uh, recollection of this, but I do believe it's still considered. I am a CPA, by the way, but I don't practice anymore, thankfully. And I have a CPA that I can ask these questions to and let him deal with it. Um, but I do believe it's still taxed as personal property. So you would be subject to capital gain taxes when you sell it. Now, you don't have to sell it. Okay. Uh, and in fact, again, as I think I alluded to earlier, I just buy Bitcoin every day. I buy more when the price is down and I aim to never sell it because I... For, everything we've talked about today, I think it's going to just keep appreciating. And um, I consider it to be disruptive to gold and, and whatnot. So in those circumstances, if you're in my strategy, there's no tax obligation because I'm just buying the thing and never selling it. Now they have talked about, they floated the idea recently, which is absolutely absurd of taxing unrealized capital gains. Which is like oh your house. So you bought your house for 100 grand. The market says it's worth 200 grand, but you haven't sold it. They send you a bill for $100,000 gain. You know, it would make no sense. It would be catastrophic for the market because now everyone would have to sell things that had gone up in price, which would crush prices. It would be, it's completely mm -hmm. asinine. Um, the other thing I'll say about it is that, you know, the most insidious form of taxation is inflation. Mm -hmm. They print more money, which is the theft of wealth from those that get the money last or latest, we may say. Yet it tricks people into thinking they're getting richer, which actually the more assets you own, it, it is like it's a regressive tax on the poor. So the more I'm depending on the dollar to store value, the larger percentage that a dollar makes up of my portfolio. Like if I'm living paycheck to paycheck, I'm 100% dollars, right? I'm just, 
right. I'm all dollars. I've got a checking account. I'm trying to like keep it filled up and not let it get below zero when I pay my bills. So my portfolio is 100% dollars. I'm getting taxed the most by inflation versus I'm a super rich guy. I've got 99% assets, real estate, equity, whatever. I've got 1% cash. Well, the more money they print, those assets are getting bid up by more dollars. And I'm only exposed to inflation in that 1% allocation to cash. So inflation is like, it's pure evil, in my opinion. You're stealing from the poor and giving to the rich. It's yep. awful. So Bitcoin immunizes you from inflation. If you hold Bitcoin, no one's inflating Bitcoin. That's the one core to the value prop of Bitcoin. It's 21 million fixed forever. Um, There's deeper things I could say about taxation. I, I think it is, I mean, it's stuffed flat out. I'm very, very libertarian about this. Um, but I also don't consider it to be even an argument. If, um, how did I hear this put? What makes, let's just put it this way. Consent is the difference between sex and rape. Consent is the difference between having a job and being enslaved. Consent is also the difference between taxation and a voluntary economic transaction. None of us consent to be taxed. None of us. It's not something we negotiate. You cannot secede from the state. You can't say, hey, I don't like the services I'm being rendered. I'm going to exit. People will argue and say, yeah, you can leave the US and renounce your citizenship. Like, yeah. And if you make more than like, I mean, the number is tiny, 100,000 bucks a year, maybe, you're getting assessed an exit tax. So if you don't like the quality of services you're receiving and you don't like being robbed, then you can just pay this bill. You can get robbed one more time and leave. Like it's, right. it's, it's really bad. So I won't <laughs> go into that rabbit hole, but uh, I'm pretty outspoken against inflation and taxation and statism more generally. I like to push back a little bit, but I, I hope that answers your question, Mama. But you know, it gets taxed like like any property. Basically, if you're holding holding Bitcoin, as Robert's suggesting for a long time, then you know, if you put in a hundred thousand over five years, and then at year six you want to take out, yeah, man, maybe it's worth two hundred thousand, let's say, and you want to take out fifty, you would get taxed on that fifty thousand dollar withdrawal. Um, and a CPA, obviously, not tax advice, you know, um, can can help you figure that out. But I want to push back. Robert, a bit on tax, just for my own education and knowledge. And I'm going to take a counterpoint here. It's not necessarily what I believe, but it's what someone might say. If I'm a government official and I say, look, you may not want to pay tax, but we have to tax you to put that money towards schools and roads and you know defense systems. One could argue the military budget's inflated or maybe we need more, but either way, there's a certain amount of, of money that every citizen has kind of a duty you know, the, the old American way of thinking about tax was it's sort of, it's what can help make our country great if we all pay our fair share, but that share was lower back in the day to make, make how, how else do we pay the interstates, right? Uh, things like this. Anyone that says the old American way of taxation was like a duty to pay for our, our communized services that we render doesn't understand American history. Like America became a superpower because we had basically no taxes. We were set up as a decentralized Republic with very low taxes 
to no taxes. Taxes were introduced in wartime uh, to pay for both the Civil War and later on World War One and World War Two. So uh, I would very heavily push back against that empirical ass assessment of of the American history related to tax. There's a great book on this uh, by a guest I had on the show named Dominic Frisbee. He did. It's actually a it's a great book. I mean, he he argues that the history of the world is a history of tax. Basically, different groups that emerged victorious, figuring out how to extract tribute from the vanquished. This is human history, like rulers and ruled people constantly trying to scalp off the hard work of others. That's what taxation is. Um, and there's another great book on this called The Myth of National Defense, which is a free PDF on Mises.org. And it goes through all of these I'm going to use the word bullshit narratives about the genesis of the state and how taxations, we all decided that it would be good for all of us. So we decided to pitch in and raise a military. Like it's all a lie. Um, it's been whoever's in a position of power, how can they exert leverage and use that monopoly of violence to extract economic value from individuals? Uh, and I, you know, what would I say to that person? Okay, we need you, you're claiming the claim is that we need to build roads, raise an army, create other communized goods and services, right? Okay, then let it be voluntary. People will voluntarily spend for what they want, that's what a market is. I don't need anyone to coerce me into funding your military if I don't want it. If I want it, I'll spend money for it. If I don't want it, then I won't spend money for it. So I actually think this is, I mean, I just wrote a long piece about this. It's titled Sovereignism, Part 8, Everywhere and Nowhere. I think this taxation specifically is the fundamental psychological schism on the psyche of humanity. Like the idea, because it's an idea that I somehow, as a ruler, have more of a claim on your life and the fruits of your labor than you do. So it's fundamentally a broken argument. Why, like you, you own yourself, right? Only you can move your left arm. Only you can choose to do anything in any one moment. No matter what I say to you, no matter how many threats, no how much torture I give you, I can never control you. I can maybe get you to submit to my will. So the idea of taxation is countervailing that truth. You go and you work and value in the world, and I'm just going to come and say, all right, give me 20% of it or else. So I'm, I'm stealing the fruit of your labor. How can that ever be good? How can that coercion embedded in society lead to anything sustainable? Because, man, like, you got to fund stuff. <laughs> then do it voluntarily. <laughs> We gotta do it consensually. Right. That's well, like saying, so well, we need to have sex. Let's go rape other people. It's like, that doesn't make any sense. Everyone I needs a job. Let's enslave people. That doesn't make any sense. I, I, so I, I studied this out of college, fresh out of college, libertarianism quite a bit. And, um, you know, von Mises and the, the Austrian School of Economics, I think everyone should, should have a grasp of 
economics and and that's a really good place um to learn it because it touches on this but just practically let's say in the in the world we live in today i've come to accept that that world that you're talking about of voluntary taxation is probably never going to happen um there are better ways to do taxation um but just to kind of you know pull back on this it's like there are ways to to avoid some taxation and, and there are a lot of professionals that that are really good at that um but i do believe that voluntarily can work but in the real world you i don't think i'm going to see it in my lifetime it's worked uh, a state that I can live in. it worked in ancient rome actually they had the, the liturgy right, i'm saying that's what i'm saying in my lifetime i don't think i'm going to see a system where i can voluntarily say i want five percent of my money to go to schools one percent to military and three percent to this and that and sort of allocate my tax bill or my burden on you know to, to participate in the societal parts that the state runs that i want to fund um you know i i love that idea i just don't see it happening maybe i'm wrong maybe you're you're like have thought about i know you've thought about this more than i have oh. with with the writings but you know maybe the as inflation keeps stealing money then taxation becomes less effective at providing goods and services that it's supposed to provide and Bitcoin goes to, you know, uh, 10 times what it is right now because it, it becomes that system of voluntary tax, maybe, but unlike there's gonna be a lot of pushback. There's, um, there's a line in that movie Inception where the guy's like shooting at the, the uh, crow's nest with a machine gun. And then the other guy comes up to him and says, you can't be afraid to dream a little bit bigger, darling. And he dreams up the grenade launcher and takes it out, you know? I'm not saying this needs to be done in my lifetime. Otherwise it doesn't make sense. I view Bitcoin as a multi-generational project. Like we may be just the beginning of this separation of money and state. It could take hundreds of years. I have no idea. However, I refuse to cede ground on intellectual territory. There's a saying that gradualism in theory is perpetuity in practice. So if I go to the state and say, all right, we're going to pull back property taxes a few points this year and for the next few years. And then eventually we'll get it down to zero. Like that will never happen. It will never happen. Like we have to take a hard line as people, if you believe in individual self-ownership, then I think you have to take a hard line and say, no, this is, it is theft. Call it what it is. Direct human intellectual energies towards its solution. I don't know if it's going to happen in my lifetime, three generations, 10 generations from now. I don't know. But I can't not highlight the truth of what it is because you can't, it's a very slippery slope. You're like, oh, well, maybe just a little bit of coercion. Let me just steal a little bit. There's 5%. Okay, I guess I'll let you steal 5%. And what happens 10 years later? Well, we misallocated the capital because we don't have any skin in the game and we stole the money from you. So the money was spent badly. We incurred a lot of debts. We need to steal 10% from you now to make up for past bad decision making. And then 15%, 20%, 30%, 40% civilizational collapse. This has been the boom and bust of human history. You get people in power, stealing from people not in power. They misallocate the capital because everyone spends other people's money a lot more frivolously than they spend their own. Debts incur, the money's printed or inflated or debased, and then the civilization collapses. So my great hope for Bitcoin is that it can just break that cycle. We're broken right now. We're just 
we're self-deceiving that we can print money and solve problems or steal from one another uh, through our our institutional frameworks, and we that's never going to be sustainable. Full stop. Never. Right. You think there's ever going to be a group of people that are like, yeah, just steal from me forever. Even if you could get it fixed, right? Assuming that they wouldn't misallocate the capital, I need to steal more from you in subsequent years. There's no group of people that are going to be okay with just being stolen from forever. This is what keeps happening. This is why every civilization collapses. And this is why our civilization is currently collapsing. I don't know. And it's scary, right? People are like, oh, don't say it. Ooh. But it's like, how you can look at history. This is what happens. We're going through it right now. Rome to base their currency. You break the main protocol, it breaks down the political protocols. The whole thing comes apart. Social cohesion comes unglued. Where are we at today? Breaking the monetary protocol. What's happening at the cultural layer? Two plus two equals five. My gender is a flag. Like, is any of this sustainable? Does anyone like think any of this is sustainable? Like how I can't yeah. not I can't not speak to that. I can't see that and not speak to that. So people are scared. I, you know, people have said all kinds of things to me like, oh, you can't say it out loud because then the, the state's going to hear you and they're going to like shut it all down. It's like, I don't care. I'm here for humanity. I don't care about any particular state or anyone that thinks they can delude themselves into some perpetual system of taxation as being any mode that we can live by. So you can see I do get passionate about this and I will digress. But I think my point is proven. If you study history, it doesn't work 100% full stop. And I don't think there's an argument against it because to argue against individual self-ownership is to express your individual self-ownership. If I tell you, I don't believe in individual self-ownership, I'm telling you based on, I've formulated a choice and decided to give you a message based on owning myself. So it's a self-refuting argument, and I think we just need to honor natural law as this country was founded upon, life, liberty, property, and everything will be okay. And we're not, we're not doing that right now. But Bitcoin hopefully ushers in a world and where we are. Mom, thoughts on this, this, this lovely... Uh passionate diatribe that uh, Robert gave us just now on your, your question about tax. Uh, well, that, that answers it. I sort of figured it was sort of like stocks and you know, taxation on that. So, um, I mean, you know, I, I agree with the taxation thing. I, I don't agree with taxing, but anyway, that's another subject. <laughs> right. I have a question or I guess um, a diatribe of my own about what, what, I started to realize and maybe flows into what you were just talking about, Robert, as far as wealth and our lifetimes, right? So let's say Bitcoin is, you know, one of the best investments you can make um, because if you're saving it, if you're not selling it, you can pass it down. And in, in, in just like, um, you know, a family heirloom that's valuable that gets passed down. Uh, gold used to be one of those those things that the families passed on. So no matter what happens in our lifetime, right? If if society collapses and someone um, is harmed or dies, their family potentially can still be okay and buy a new house or um, rebuild. You know, their their worth with with the value that Bitcoin has uh, in the future, and so. 
going on that train of thought, my work had been in the solar industry. And um, I went from realizing or thinking that solar was something that only hippies got, or it was a very, you know, it has an agenda behind it. Sure, it gets politicized. Um, but what it really gives you is sovereignty. You have the ability now to create your own energy mm. for decades with just a few small pieces of equipment. Um, and that's what I what I did. And then a couple of years ago, I built a truck that was completely solar powered, completely electric. I could live in the back of it and drove it across the country. My mom came out and, and uh, we did a quick quick little interview about this. And then I got to thinking about it. And I said, you know, this truck can charge itself. It can fill itself up. I don't need anybody else to create fuel. That's That was one of my realizations for wanting to build it. Then I got to thinking about Bitcoin and crypto and mining and said, you know, what if I'm using that energy to now basically print money, uh, but in a different way through through Bitcoin. Isn't that, you know, one of these sort of really interesting qualities to me about Bitcoin that I don't hear people talk about much, but the fact that mining is something that anyone can do with a little bit of equipment or a little bit of energy, or, or let's say they're just, you know, paying a little bit of money to someone else to just buy what they're mining. Um, it gives you energy. If you can create energy, then you can participate in, in, in a money society or sorry, a, um, you know, what would you call it in Bitcoin and in a system of money that no one can stop. Yeah, I completely agree that Bitcoin is going to radically transform global energy markets. And the implications are, I mean, I'm still trying to get my head around it. Um, because one of the things that happens here is you don't, if all of a sudden the money, I'm sorry, energy is being monetized directly, then it would seem to me like energy producers well, you know, Bitcoin miners and energy producers start to merge because that's that's the buyer of last resort for energy worldwide, right? So every energy producer is probably going to add Bitcoin mining, at least to augment some of that. And then the, the further implication is like, okay, banking and financial services will start to be absorbed by that as well. I would think it's like, there would just be a software layer on top of this energy producer slash miner. So it's like, uh, we've, it's like sucking all of these industries into one and, and then it gets dispersed over the globe based on the cost of uh, what is it? The levelized cost of electricity. Is that the metric they use? Something like yeah, that. LCOE. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, I love Nick Carter's analogy that, if you imagine the globe with a, a topography on it where high cost energy were like mountains, low cost energies were like valleys, you can imagine Bitcoin just like pouring a glass of water on this globe and Bitcoin mining just settles in all the nooks and crannies to the, the lowest cost energy, frankly. Um, and then there's this, the other aspect is this, we have this global perpetual incentive to uncover either wasted energy underused or unused energy. I, the, someone, a friend of mine sent me this map the other day, a satellite image of all the natural gas flaring worldwide. And it's crazy. Like the whole world's lit up with natural gas flaring, which is literally, they're just burning energy and polluting the atmosphere because it's too expensive to sell it to, to you know, uh, I guess, what is the word? Harness it or harvest it and sell it. 
Right. So they just burn it into the atmosphere. Well, you can go cap those wells with a Bitcoin miner and turn it into money. Right. So there's so much money being left on the table. It's staggering, but I'm not an expert in this domain. I just kind of have this theoretical high level view of it. Uh, I do plan on writing more about this. I have a lot of notes on it, but, um, you know, for the super deep dive detailed, Nidig posted a piece of, about it recently. I think Ross Stevens and Nick Carter actually co-authored it. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of tremendous writing in the space that I would I would point people that direction. Um, I think you know, instead of going down this this depth of a rabbit hole, the concept for the average person to realize is that Bitcoin creates value where we were actually wasting value before, even in something destroying like value. Gap, Destroying value, right? Yeah. But but let's say Hawaii, for instance. Um, again, being in the solar industry, I went there for a while, and and the grid says, you know, everyone's gone solar in Hawaii because energy has been so expensive for a long time. Um, but now the utility will not give you a good rate for the energy you produce during the middle of the day. They have too much. They right. have more energy right. than they need because there are more. There's more sunlight and more solar panels. Yeah. So all the state needs to do is use that excess energy. Just ever, like the grid would never have a blackout. You could just use the extra energy yeah. to create money that you could use for a good cause for that state, for those communities. It's load balancing. Um, and now right. you solve this problem. Right. And you're, you're rebalancing these systems. So as renewable energy becomes more of a popular thing, it's going to meld with Bitcoin. It's going to meld with energy. But the question I have that everyone or a lot of people have been really excited about back to kind of my mom's first question of what is crypto? And you've touched on this in some other podcasts, but I really want to kind of pin down because I still don't even understand the answer. Why is proof of stake bad? And why are all of these new cryptos that have these big valuations and they're going up in price using proof of stake? It seems like there's a consensus that it's it's better than proof of work. And no, I know you don't agree no, with that. No, definitely not. If there was a consensus, again, our language, like, better than proof of work by whose measure because if i'm looking well, at the market the other coins right well if i'm looking at the market no bitcoin has outperformed everything in bitcoin terms over 13 years i mean we're in the middle of a bull run right now you could go and cherry pick your speculative altcoin and say oh this one's outperformed bitcoin and my answer would be okay give it 48 months then then let's talk um in thermodynamic reality, which is the one we inhabit, there is no known way to secure the supply of money other than energy expenditure. This is the truth of gold, and this is the truth of Bitcoin. Dollars don't have, dollars are proof of stake. Central banking is proof of stake. Gold is proof of work. Central banking is proof of stake built on top of gold. Whoever stakes the most gold, which is what the United States does, we have the most gold in the world, supposedly, we think China might actually be ahead of us now. We get to fund the largest military and make the rules and export inflation. All right, so here's the key point with proof of stake. And I'm not gonna, again, I won't do the deep dive on this because we got to wrap up here, but um, what's that? phrase in the bible i think it's matthew it's like to those who have more will be given to from those who have not everything will be taken that's proof of stake in a nutshell 
it's like the larger your, your stake, the more you're allocated in proceeds from that network. The smaller your stake, the less you're allocated. It's pro rata. So what do you what happens? Like what happens? Same thing that happens in a centrally banked economy. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Wealth disparity grows until the entire economic network collapses. So the idea, proof of stake, in my view, is trying to attack Bitcoin's energy expenditure. It's putting on the same moralistic camouflage as ESG and all of this other bogus state narrative to have climate lockdowns and whatever else they're going to spin this into. The market decides. You can't say it's wasted energy. Who says it's wasted? Did, did people go and voluntarily spend to acquire it and then put it to use? Well, then wasted by whose account? The people that voluntarily sacrifice to obtain it don't think it's wasted because they spent money to acquire it. So proof of stake is inherently centralizing and prone to collapse. Proof of work is an incentive schema that encourages all market participants to work, uh, to compete, to be honest. And it, again, it's rooted in energy. So it's like, it makes it incorruptible. You can't have incorruptible money that's not rooted in energy. That's what gold was a proxy for. And that's what Bitcoin has perfected. Is that, I'm, I'm kind of leaping in, but I'm trying to, to wrap up, but some of the, the concerns or a, a, summary, a, a summary that I've heard people that don't understand crypto or Bitcoin at all say is that it's basically a giant Ponzi scheme. Is what you're talking about and being rooted in energy what separates it from, you know, obviously the more people, the more market participants, the, the better the value, like a Ponzi scheme, yes, but because it's rooted in energy, it's, it's completely not... It is not a scheme. It's not a. So I wrote about this for a deep dive on this. You could read Masters and Slaves of Money. Every money exhibits a network effect valuation dynamic. So the first adopters, just like we talked about earlier, when I'm anticipating adoption in the future by other market actors and I'm buying Bitcoin today, there's a network effect valuation dynamic that I'm anticipating future adoption. So I'm going to benefit disproportionately. I'm going to buy Bitcoin at whatever I've been buying it for a long time at a certain price in anticipation of other people buying it at a higher price. Right. But it goes even a step further when you're talking about what is a price and Bitcoin is money. So you think Bitcoin is going to denominate all prices. But the point is those that get access to the monetizing asset first, benefit disproportionately to those that adopt it later. Same was true as gold, right? When gold was monetizing, if I could go back in time, like, oh, I think I figured out money. I, re I read Austrian economics, which one is it's kind of a silly example because the, the literature wasn't available then. But if somehow you figured it out that gold was going to monetize and you could accumulate a bunch of gold before it did, you'd be super rich when it did monetize, right? It would be worth, it had increased in purchasing power a lot. Well, the example was the the Native Americans didn't look at gold as money, and right. that's why it was taken, stolen from them. There you go. Right? But here, here's the here's the scheme part of fiat currency pyramid scheme, which again is proof of stake, is that you have a monopoly, right, on the production of money that violently and coercively enforces that monopoly. That says only we get to counterfeit the currency. 
you have to use it, but we get to counterfeit it and produce more. So that's the scheme, right? That they can, you at the point of a gun are forced to use the US dollar. Pay your taxes in this or go to jail. But we're going to print. And if you try to print it, right, if you try to launch a counterfeiting operation, this is the phrase that a lot of people resonated with this. Inflation is legalized counterfeiting. Counterfeiting is criminalized inflation. They're literally the same thing. There's not one ounce of difference other than who the guns are pointed at. You can do it. Like, we can do it. You can't. That's basically the gist of it. So inside of that monopoly where you can produce more money you can confiscate wealth from those that you're pointing the guns at and you're forcing them to use the money that's the pyramid scheme right so it's almost like the the they're perpetually the early adopters of new money because they're always printing it first and getting it first everyone within the protection of the legal monopoly that includes both bureaucrats and central bank shareholders and other politically connected insiders, they are perpetually awarding themselves the position of newest adopter of money by having access to freshly printed fiat currency first. So they're scalping everyone else. It's a, it's a regressive tax on the poor, as we said earlier. That is proof of stake, right? If you're an insider and you've accumulated a bunch of Ethereum, and I know Ethereum is not proof of stake yet, but just humor me and say it is, and I'm Vitalik and I have a trillion Ethereum and it's proof of stake. Well, I'm going to get more and more uh, staking rewards. And the guy at the bottom of the hierarchy is going to get less and less proportionally. So it it's centralizing and destructive to the hierarchy. It rips itself apart. And I'm I, again, people will be like, oh, well, no, it's, this is crypto. We haven't figured it out yet. We're still experimenting. It's like central banking is proof of stake. How has that worked out across history? How has gold worked out as proof of work money versus how has central banking worked out as proof of stake money? So I have a rational, fundamental understanding of why it destroys itself. I have empirical history of it destroying itself repeatedly, contributing to the Austrian business cycle theory and all of these other catastrophic consequences of corrupted money. I mean, it seems like an open and shut case to me, but... Um, the other perverse thing about inflating money is people go crazy and they just want to buy any gambling device known to man. That's why Shibu Inu, Dubu coin and all these other things are going through the roof. People are just, they're gambling. And I think this is going to get worse, by the way. The more dollars we print, the more that gambling behavior will, will grow um, until the dollar collapses. That's a good point. Uh because Linda, you had asked about that as far as, you know, what are the other coins? Which ones are safe? How do you know which ones are safe? Maybe we can kind of close on that question. I don't know. Um, I don't know that there's Bitcoin a good answer. Only. <laughs> Bitcoin only. I, I, I don't know that I agree with that yet. You've, you've made some- You will. Give it 48 stuff. months and get back to me. Are there, so the, well, that's one of the- How, how long have you been uh, in Bitcoin? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not even sure. A few years, but I I have I used to gamble for a living. So uh. I look at markets. I look at things that are uh, that are going up, and I say if I put money in there and time it correctly and 
get out right after right before Elon Musk's on Saturday Night Live. <laughs> um, I can make some money. And that's and fine. I that's that's you're, being, you're being honest with yourself, right? right? You're treating it like a gambling device. Wonderful. That's what it is. Yeah. You see what other people are doing. You you realize that they're going to lose money. And if you're one of the people that they're giving it to, you know, better than not participating in my opinion, but other people have moral arguments yeah. against that. Well, this is where I differ from, and I'm, I don't consider myself a Bitcoin maximalist. I consider myself a freedom maximalist. Like by all means, you want to gamble, go gamble. I choose, I get peace of mind and economic assurances. I got just the best risk adjusted bet in my opinion I can make is to hold hundred percent Bitcoin. Um, I'm not, there, I, will, I have no moral judgment on someone that wants to go out and trade, uh, shit coins and do whatever, but, but it's, it's a blurry line though, because once you become a pusher of one of these projects, especially when you start saying things like we're the next Bitcoin, I mean, you're lying right? you know, you're lying. If you're not, if you, so, if, you're, if you don't know you're lying, you're self-deceiving. So it is a blurry any? line that I choose to just kind of yeah. keep at arm's length. But if you purely are a gambler and you're looking to gamble and you treat them as gambling devices, well, that's what they are. So have at it. Are there any other coins that have a new concept or an idea that they, if they succeed at it, it's going to be a, a revolutionary uh, thing or, or should it all be built on Bitcoin's code? I don't have the answer to that question. Um, there's a lot of theory out there. I have not been able to see my current view is that we would have almost total consolidation at the base layer into Bitcoin and a lot of this experimentation pushed into higher layers on Bitcoin. But I don't know. It's for the market to figure out. And, um, you know, I just look at it like this. Bitcoin's been doing what it's supposed to do virtually perfectly for 13 years solid. So it has no unsolved computer science problems. Um, you know, very low uncertainty relative to the broader crypto asset landscape. As we said earlier, it's an insurance policy on the printing of dollars. We're printing dollars at an unprecedented rate. I think the global fiat currency experiment is going to come to a catastrophic end. I think when that end comes, governments are going to violate private property rights rampantly. They'll increase property taxes. They'll do all kinds of crazy stuff. Just again, study the history. Go look at the Weimar Republic. Look what governments did in that situation. They get desperate. I want to store my value, my wealth that I plan on passing to my kids and onward in the most, the highest integrity property right and most credible money I can find, which is Bitcoin. So the risk adjusted return on Bitcoin at a $1 trillion market cap competing for hundred trillion plus is just way in favor of Bitcoin over anything else, in my opinion. But again, I is also, I've spent five years studying this thing pretty much exclusively. And like everything we talked about today is the product of that study. So to each their own, I, I believe in freedom above all else even Bitcoin. Right. Mom, you've been quiet. I've, I kind of asked a few questions and chatted about things. Um, how much are you going to buy? How many, how many crypto assets are you going to buy here tomorrow? Uh, if she wanted to buy, oh, go ahead. Sorry. 
No, that's okay. When I get my next bonus, maybe I'll buy some. <laughs> like, things it's haven't been that good that. the past two months. <laughs> so. Robert, I know you. I know you do Swan, but um, is if, what are? Can you simplify for all of the people that aren't really tech and computer savvy? The simplest way to start, let's say, daily cost averaging, putting let's say a hundred bucks a week into Bitcoin. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of options now. I mean, I don't even know what all companies do dollar cost averaging at this point, but Swan's been doing it for a while. Strike does it now. Um, again, we named the other big exchanges earlier. I'm not even sure if they offer it. Um, but what not. would she, what, what's the, what's the, the mode of operation to do that? Just to make it really simple, like go to Swan, go to this website and follow the instructions, right? That's well, I don't want to point like i would say you need to do your diligence on exchanges and then you choose an exchange and you sign up it's just like any other app or or web service and then you go through their their onboarding process and they'll hold your but then hand he mentions geographically multi what was the term geographically distributed multi-sig so there are i can suggest a couple of companies that work on that one is casa here in the us they offer a multi-sig solution um, and they will, they basically walk you through it. They hold your hand, you know, it's a bit complex, but they have an onboarding process. Uh, another one's Unchained Capital. They have a multi-sig vault product, I believe. Um, and again, I'm sure there's many others out there. Those are two that I know of. Okay. Well, I hope this was helpful guys. And we can do a part two if you like. Um, but I think we need to shut it down right here. Yeah, for sure. I, I know that she, she's been like a fire hose at your face, mom, but I hope that you've got more, more knowledge than I could bestow because you know how it is with me trying to explain to an older generation that they, they might not, uh, and I don't know enough, honestly. So this has been super helpful for me, but maybe uh, you can get some new questions for, for Robert. And thank you so much for, for having us, for accepting. This has been a lot of fun and very educational. I've, Got a whole page or two of notes here, and um, I'm sure Linda does too. Yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, you're very welcome, guys. Uh, Josh, Linda, come back and do it anytime, and I'm happy to answer more questions. So, thank you for coming on. Okay. Thank you for we'll having catch us. Up on all the writing you've already got. Yeah. <laughs>